Welcome back to Read and Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMPLP Louisville. Reviewing Yale University sociologist Matthew Desmond's 2016 Pulitzer Prize winning text, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City Today. Real talk on a real issue. Stay tuned. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMPLP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Read and Succeed, continuing our regularly scheduled programming after our moving conversation with 26th Poet Laureate of Kentucky, Dr. Frank X. Walker, last episode about his early poetry and reflections on the September 23rd Breonna Taylor verdict here in Louisville. And moving on to a discussion with the Dean of Behavioral and Social Sciences at Jefferson Community and Technical College, Mr. Chip Thomas, on the absolutely brutal expose on 21st century American urban areas and 2016 Pulitzer Prize winner for general nonfiction, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, by sociologist Matthew Desmond. Both seemingly unrelated texts, guests, and topics, but under deeper analysis more connected than one would realize. Eviction, the act of being forcibly removed from one's home, is, as Chip and I discuss, as systematic in American society and history as racism. In 2020 alone, per the CDC, nearly 40 million Americans are at risk of being evicted, nearly 120,000 here in Louisville. Deeper still, the two issues are synergistic in nature, with evictions at both a personal and policy level falling disproportionately along racial and socioeconomic lines, and often before, during, and after drug addiction, food insecurity, and financial instability. Evicted is a real book about real life, and Chip and I have a real talk on real issues. Please visit readandsucceed.net and our social media sites. Visit forwardradio.org to donate to Community Radio. Learn more about Chip Thomas and Jefferson Community and Technical College at jefferson.kctcs.edu. And enjoy this interview. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Ladies and gentlemen, our next guest on Read and Succeed is Mr. Leonard Chip Thomas. Chip is an associate professor of sociology and dean of behavioral and social sciences at Jefferson Community and Technical College in Louisville, Kentucky, where he has been employed since 2013. Chip graduated from Center College and has a Master's of Arts in Sociology from the University of Louisville and is currently pursuing his Ph.D. in Educational Leadership at the University of Kentucky. Chip's research interests are in race, poverty, and housing discrimination. In addition to his work at the college, he also has a wife and three children. Chip, welcome to Read and Succeed. Thank you. Happy to be here. The book that we are reviewing is Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City. The author is Matthew Desmond. Matthew Desmond is a sociologist, and Chip, you teach sociology, is that correct? I do, yes. I was very excited when this book first came out in 2015. And what I like about this book and also about 
Matthew, who is a MacArthur Genius Award winner, is that this book comes from his experience. So when you listen to Matthew, when he talks about the book, he talks about having his parents be evicted from their home, having to live in a trailer park with no hot water, with having to live in group housing. And I think the way that he writes expresses the way that a lot of Americans live every day, but don't have the platform for which to speak and write about their lives. Absolutely. I was blown away by the level of, I'm going to say intimacy, but the rawness of the narrative. I thought that this was going to be a book that was almost like a, a research, like an academic paper. But I was shocked at the level of graphic narratives detailing the hard realities of eviction. You know, I've never been evicted. I've moved around a lot. I moved around a lot when I was in the military. But the idea of losing my home and all the events that lead up to that, the actual act itself and all the events that come after that, and then the cycle that that sends an individual into, I had no idea of the terror. Like I can think of no other word uh, that this book allowed me to understand was this is what this really looks like in human society. And it's happening all over the place, including here in Louisville. That's exactly right. One of the things I tell my students in class is that sociology is about your lived experiences. And I feel this book does that very well. And when I talk to my students about inequality, you know, usually as sociologists, we talk about two different types. One, structural, things that as people we don't have access to, we can't deal with it, we can't touch it. And then the other one is individual, things that affect us personally, and we can make our choices in such a way as to hopefully lessen the blow from inequality from time to time. And what I think this book shows is both the structural inequality and the individual choices that people make and how that affects not only their lives, but the lives of their children as well. The term sociologist, the term sociology. Educate me and educate the listener on what exactly a sociologist is and what a sociologist does. Sociology is a study of society. If you really break it down, ology is a study of, and soci is really society. So we study society both from a theoretical and practical point of view. What I like to tell my students is that when you think about sociology, we study a lot of things like Matthew studied evictions. But he didn't stop there. He has a whole eviction center at Princeton where he looks into aspects of evictions, but also public policy that we can implement to decrease or help individuals in the process of being evicted. And so sociology is really the study of society, and a sociologist is one who studies society, defines trends, defines patterns for which we can gain insight and knowledge, and then we can report that in a very academic way to benefit individuals' lives. How would you differentiate a sociologist from an anthropologist? Because anybody who interacts with the social sciences, definitely at a post-secondary level within their education, You're going to hear those two terms. How would you go about differentiating here's a sociologist and here's an anthropologist? Really, there's a lot of gray area when you look at what people sometimes refer to as cultural anthropology, people who are studying the culture, the ethnography of individuals. And when you actually read this book, this book is one of those books that really borderlines cultural anthropology and sociology. In fact, there's actually a part of sociology called cultural sociology. And so this book, which is an ethnography, uh, again, someone who's living, staying, uh, not just observing, but also maybe participating, is going to be really part of cultural anthropology and sociology. 
Now, there are other parts of anthropology that are going to be very different, especially when you look at aspects of archaeology or archaeological anthropology, which is typically looking at antiquity and trying to put together what happened in the past where sociologists, similar to cultural anthropologists or linguistic anthropologists, are really going to look at the language, how people are living, their clothing, their customs or traditions in today's society. So there's not really much difference between a cultural anthropologist and a sociologist or sociologist who focuses on cultural sociology. Now, one thing you said for the listener, anybody can look at my biography on the ReachCC website. My graduate work in my professional life is I have a master's of business administration. I have a master's of public administration. We didn't study sociology per se within business administration. I think it would be a good idea if you got your MBA that you had some background in the social sciences, but we definitely studied it within in my master's of public administration, and in particular, the bureaucracy, the concept of bureaucracy, and that led us to a German sociologist, I definitely know Chip will be aware of this name, it's Max Weber. Oh, absolutely. Some consider the father of modern sociology. Mm -hmm. And the concept that Chip was bringing, and this permeates all of the social sciences, economics, sociology, anthropology, and it's the idea of there's things that are studied at an individual level, at the micro level, And then there's things that are studied at the aggregate level or the macro level. The idea of once all individual behaviors or individual incidences, as we'll talk about related to evicted, add up, okay, then how this operates on a societal level. Within public administration, we study the individual bureaucrat and then how that adds up to the bureaucracy and how the bureaucracy operates within society, how it interacts with corporations, how it interacts with the nonprofit world. The individual analysis and then the societal analysis both exist within the social sciences, particularly within sociology. And one last question on sociology, Chip, where would a listener, if they wanted to know where they could find a sociologist within their community, we'll use Louisville as a case study, or somebody who has an education in sociology, where are we going to find them at in our communities? So I would tell you to go to your four-year college in your neighborhood. So in our case, it'd be the University of Louisville in Kentucky, UK. Go to their website and look for a department in sociology. Uh, You can find somebody there or you can go to asanet.org, which is the professional organization for sociologists. And we're going to find sociologists working in academia. We're going to find sociologists working in government. We're going to find sociologists that are working privately as as researchers. I tell my students, when you look at a lot of people who work for the United States Census, when you look at a lot of people who are doing poll work, who are asking people questions, there are a lot of lawyers, a lot of doctors, especially if you think about taking the MCAT or the LSAT. A lot of those tests now require you take sociology. So you have a lot of lawyers and doctors who may have a background in sociology. In fact, probably the field that pays the most is medical epidemiology or medical Mm -hmm. sociology. And so sociology is a very variable subject where it has its hand, I think, in almost any disciplinary science. But yes, certainly you're going to find sociologists working in a plethora of jobs within your city and within the nation. And think about the relationship between sociology and epidemiology this, this year. COVID-19 is a sociological case study in and of itself. I take medicine out of it. Right. I mean, just the, the effects that it's had on our society over the course of this year. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell.
Now, moving on to the text itself, and I know you would have alluded to some of the very personal nature of the text. I always want to give a disclaimer before we talk. Many of the subjects that we talk about on Read Succeed are very controversial. We've talked about issues of race, natural disasters, wars, etc. Before Chip and I start talking about the book Evicted, which is about evictions, we just want to list a few of the privileges that I know that, that we are speaking from today. I'm speaking from a position of white privilege. The reality is, if you read the text and if you do any studies of eviction, I operate as a white male in a demographic that my probability of being evicted from my home for a variety of reasons is less. Chip and I are also both males. As we were reading through the text, eviction was striking women, particularly single mothers, a lot harder than it was men, which is related to issues of equal pay, child care, access to income, welfare. And Chip and I, I think, operating from a position of economic privilege. We're both employed right now. The realities mm -hmm. of eviction are far away from our life at this point. We get the privilege of being able to work from home for the most part at our jobs. Our community college allowed us to do that. There are people who are in the service area for this radio station, Forward Radio. There may be people who are listening to this radio show right now who have been evicted or may be looking at an eviction in the near future. Chip and I are not having this episode as a thought exercise for our own entertainment. We hope that this conversation that we have can lead people to a deeper knowledge of this and keep conversations going within the communities to reduce the reality of eviction in society. Absolutely. Well said. We always want to give that, that we are to providing a public service, educationally speaking, for the service area. And that's definitely within the mission of JCTC. It's definitely within the mission of Ford Radio. And I think it's within the mission of sociology itself. Sociology was created to solve some of the issues in society, particularly of inequality, as Chip alluded to. So what did you think the first time you read the book? The first time I read the book, I was floored. Yeah. I was yeah snapping my fingers and saying how important this book was, how much this subject area has typically been taboo or not discussed or not written about from an academic perspective. I was so excited that it gave voice to the vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, that it did. But it also broke my heart. I mean, there's a couple of times when I've read this where, again, emotionally, I got angry, frustrated, sad. I was shocked when I read it. I, I yeah. was shocked. We did two episodes again. It was, it was on the reality of cancer, The Undying by Ann Boyer. And, and it was a narrative about what life really looks like when you get cancer and you go through chemotherapy. I was terrified reading it. And with this, I was jarred. I was shocked. How could society even allow this to happen, particularly at the level that it's happening? It's like I've heard the Louisville Urban League say we have an eviction epidemic. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is, is going back to reading is because few I didn't know any of these stories before I read this book. You got to think that pre-COVID, right? Pre-COVID, Louisville had twice the national average with evictions. Really? Right? And again, I want to say that like 120,000 people were four months away from being evicted until President Trump did his memorandum saying no evictions until the end of the year. When you look at the statistics for Louisville, especially in regards to eviction, you know, we really stand out. For example, Louisville, uh, we currently have around 60,000 people paying more than 30% for housing. 
What does that mean for food? I think I would argue that due to the amount that people are paying for rent or their mortgage, in this case rent typically, it's going to lead to a lot of food security. And we've seen that Louisville, I think is what, we're fifth in the nation in regards to food insecurity? Really? Yeah. Currently in Louisville, we have about 121,000 people who could be evicted at any moment. 121,000 folks. 121,000. That's like 20 to 30 percent of Louisville's population alone could be evicted within four months if President Trump did nothing. To his credit, even getting on Section 8 in Louisville, I think that the backlog is somewhere around eight to 10 years. Explain what Section 8 is. Section 8 is a housing voucher that, based on your income, will pay a proportion of your rent. So depending on where you fall within the poverty line, the poverty perspective, Section 8 can pay anywhere from 30% all the way up to about 90% of your rent. Again, and it's going to be based on how much the individual makes, including mostly her family members. So you're looking at, let's say there's a single mom with one child, based on her income, she's going to pay a proportion of that income for subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. So it's a voucher program. And what happens instead of the renter getting money to pay the landlord, what Section 8 does is they just send money straight to the landlord. I always say this about Louisville, and we'll get to the relationship between eviction and gentrification a few questions from now, but use Louisville as a case study for your average American larger urban area. Yeah. The statistics that Chip just gave, we're not talking about one block that's on hard times, one block that's living at the socioeconomic boiling point to the level of they could lose their home and be living out on the streets. We're talking about over 100,000 people. And I'm sure that is just as true in Chicago, in Milwaukee, in probably Memphis, as it is anywhere else. I think for a lot of people who are connected to the mechanisms of public policy and politics, they're probably far removed from those individuals that are living in that situation. They have little or no awareness of it. COVID-19 has now brought this to light. And let me say, David, that whenever I try to talk about data, I always want to make sure that you and others can fact check me. Most of my data is going to be coming from the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting. Louisville Magazine actually just wrote an article similar to the book that we read that was published in July. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. One thing, and this was throughout the entire text, and I think these are kindred issues that I know most people have at the front of their mind now at this point in the United States. One issue was eviction. The other issue was addiction. Yeah. Almost every single story, I think it was 12 different stories that, that Matthew Desmond talked about, case studies within addiction, and these were all in Milwaukee, was once the reality of opioid addiction or substance abuse entered into an individual's life, and we're not passing moral judgments, we're talking about these things medically and sociologically, the reality of eviction was not far off at that point. Mm -hmm. uh, these individuals were now contending with the reality of an inelastic demand in economics. I mean, that's a demand that's not going to change under any circumstances, no different than food or medicine, for the substances that their bodies required because of their addictions. Even their rent and all other necessities began to be prioritized behind that need, and eventually they lost their homes because of that. That stood out for me. I'm a firm believer in treatment on demand for addiction. It's not about reducing the supply. It's about reducing the demand so that that demand is not constantly weighing on a person's life situation all the time. Right. Uh, we could do a completely separate episode on opioid addiction. I hope one day that we do. But 
it's I have those, some really those, great books in mind too. What's <laughs> it? I have some really great books that I have in mind for my students on opioid addiction. The relationship between it losing your home, you know, socioeconomic vulnerability for sure, single motherhood the racial realities, racism in society. But it didn't matter who you were. Once you got addicted to opioids, your path to homelessness or houselessness, it seemed almost fixed, according to the book. Yeah. That was, um, and then the stigma. You know, I can remember every time I have rented, and I rented a lot because I was in the military, I was constantly moving around. Yeah. Uh, as a soldier, you know, we're, or as an active duty service member with a fixed housing allowance and with all the scrutiny that comes at you from the military itself. We were excellent credit risks for any landlord. But it was always asked, have I declared bankruptcy? Have I been evicted? And the stigma that was being attached to the eviction. Okay, so you've lost your home in the past. Now that means that people in the future will be less likely to give you another home. Yes. You know, one of the things that you brought up in the book, they mentioned someone named Scott. Again, Scott, for the listener, Scott is not the individual's real name who worked at a nursing home and mm -hmm. lost his license due to eviction. And even after he decided, he made the choice, I'm going to get better. I'm going to go to a methadone clinic. I'm going to go to AA. I'm going to try to get my life back on track. Just the hurdles that he had to climb after being evicted from his home, having to find information, it's so much more difficult. I'm sure a lot of individuals I've heard of Maslow's hierarchy, where it talks about basic needs that human beings have before they can move into more cognitive behavior, more cognitive thinking. Yeah. Housing is one of the most important securities you can have. And what this book shows is that how people really have to negotiate their housing. If yeah. you live in a trailer park, there are a number of people who lived with strangers they just met or family members who are equally struggling or moving back home with a parent or living with a parent and then both of you all are struggling to not only pay your rent if you're able, but then also maybe having your utility shut off because you're trying to pay your rent or yeah. Again, the book talks about children not having enough to eat because, you know, they're trying to pay the rent and any medical needs that may have happened. And so really what you see is that if someone doesn't have housing security, their lives really depend on first, where can I live? And what's interesting in the book, when you see people who lost their house due to eviction, moving into a shelter, and then I think in one case in the book, her child pulls the fire alarm and now they're kicked out of the shelter. Mm -hmm. It just shows you how time consuming it can be to find a house, to rent a house, and then make sure that your rent payment is taken care of. The stories of the landlords as well. I have a landlord right now. I rent, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I left this book and there was a level of villainization against landlords. And the reality is, is landlords are, are operating within the framework of current laws. There is no law that prevents them from evicting. There's regulations around that decision, but eviction is both legally and culturally acceptable within the United States. Right. So we can't, don't get me wrong, there was a level of predation with some of these stories of these landlords within the text. I think there was also a level of callousness with some of these evictions, which is which is shocking. We understand if you own a property, you have to pay a mortgage to the bank. And if you split your property and you bring in tenants paying rent, you still have to pay the mortgage. I understand that from an economic perspective. And, and I remember when COVID-19 hit, New York City in particular, some of the landlords were having to start evicting some of their tenants out of some of the more middle class to upper middle class properties within Manhattan. And they were saying, you know, we can only do so much because if we don't 
don't pay the banks or mortgage on the property, we ourselves will lose our property. Right. So landlords, this was like related to in the last episode of Read Succeed with poet Frank X. Walker and I were talking about uh, the Breonna Taylor case, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, he said, well, you have to understand the system was operating exactly like it's currently designed to operate. Mm. I left this book thinking about the eviction system. No, I agree with you. I think it, the book does show not only the structural pressure that I think the renters are under, but it also talks about the structural nature, like you said, of rental policy. I think one of the things that Matthew Desmond does really well is he points out the callousness. He, he points out the flexibility uh, within the rental laws that allow landlord owners to operate. So, yep. for example, you know, he talks about in the trailer park where Tobin lived that since they had, I think, a vacancy policy of like 4% vacancy, so they, they didn't have trouble bringing in renters, that allowed them to have some flexibility in how they want to rent their trailer. So they can do a lot fee, they can do a trailer fee, they can work with people. When you read this book, what it shows you is that landlords really don't have a financial incentive to fix their property. Yeah. In fact, the book says that it's actually cheaper for some landlords to evict renters and bring new ones in than it is actually to fix up rental property. They're incentivized to evict. Right, yeah. and how problematic that policy is. Yeah. And you could argue that that's wrong for the landlords, but they're also operating within the structural framework that our society gives them. Yep. And how changing that policy could both benefit the landlords and also benefit renters as well. And to your point, you also saw how landlords could be retaliatory without really facing any repercussions. Yep. Now, this is going to vary by city and state. So some cities like Washington, D.C., I'm a homeowner, but most of my family does own property. They do rent property. And so you have some cities like Washington, D.C., really has a strong framework to protect renters' rights. Mm. And you have other places like Louisville and others where you don't have a tenant union. You don't have very strong protections for renters. And that's another policy that we can implement as a city, as a state, as a nation I know you talked about there was the national moratorium on evictions, and that came from President Trump. That came from a national level. Right. But when you talk about tenant unions, I've never heard of that. How much of these policies are municipal? Like I'm trying to think about in terms of uh, how these things are operating within federalism, you know, state, local, and federal. What could we go to Mayor Fisher and the city council here in Louisville? And you talk about changing the structural systems that currently lead to this eviction crisis. What level of leeway are we going to have at a local area to be able to go? About, go about doing that? You know, that's a great question. I don't know. But when I look at a lot of municipalities, they seem to be the ones that are able to make those changes. So in Kentucky, I don't know whether Louisville has the freeway from the state to enforce that or not. But when I look at New York City, when I look at Chicago, when I look at D.C., a lot of them do have this tenant union that they can pay into, that they have, uh, especially the ways that I typically see it are within big buildings. So oh, yeah, yeah. you're renting inside one physical structure. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Chip and I were talking earlier, the difference between sociology and cultural anthropology. And there's relationships within society, and then there's cultural relationships and cultural differences. And an interesting point, as I was reading this book and I was doing some of the research for the show, and I was looking at, you know, many people who follow Read and Succeed, they see the artwork, the ads that I do to promote each show. And I was looking for art on eviction. And all of it were paintings 
and visual art representations of evictions within Western society, particularly emanating out of Great Britain during the Industrial Era. And I know anybody that studies British and English culture, of which American culture is a product of, you always hear the stories about the estate owners and the rents that they demanded of all the agricultural workers and the peasants on those lands and the reality of losing your home and being stigmatized. And many paintings from some of the great masters of the 19th century were showing pictures of the evictions or protests that were around evictions. It was kind of a pre-sort of How the Other Half Lives by Jacob Rees or, or Evicted by Matthew Desmond. But I have a lot of friends in the Arab world. Anybody listen? to read succeed i talk about them frequently eviction culturally speaking within the middle eastern culture is almost unthinkable it, it, it's i've been told many times by many of my arab friends that are living in america right now and navigating the realities of the american economy all the time like us americans have to do universally they were saying is the reality of losing your home doesn't even really even exist within their culture because it's unthinkable that another human being could do that to another human being particularly within the Arab world. So there's no laws for or against eviction because in the mind of many people in the Middle East, if we had a choice between removing somebody from their home or finding resources within the community for them to be able to keep their home and not have to deal with the stigmas related to that, that's what they would opt to do. One of the reasons why the Arab-Israeli conflict, many Arabs view that conflict through the lens of an eviction. They were evicted from their lands. It goes back to the loss of the home, but culturally speaking. And within American society, we find it culturally acceptable. Well, you couldn't pay your rent. Well, what's that mean? It means you're out on the street. That built into our biases how we even think about this issue. Because it existed long before any of us were even born. Well, I think you're right. I think it does come to a cultural understanding of how we see people who are vulnerable. And do we make a decision about someone who doesn't have a house? Should we provide some kind of housing for them? And I think Section 8 and voucher programs were a step in the right direction. But to your point, the United States has a long history when it comes to, let's call them debtors or renters, right? Yeah. Let's remember that Georgia was actually founded as a debtor's colony. Europe was so clogged with people who couldn't afford to pay rent that they were incarcerated and then sent overseas to here. Wow. And, but we still do that today, right? We still incarcerate people who are homeless, people who can't find a place to live. Where do we send them? We incarcerate them. And then we make them pay a fine for being incarcerated. And I think one of the things that when you see the United States today, when you see, especially when you see Louisville yeah. today, you see what's called dissimilarity. That's from an academic point of view. Usually when we talk about dissimilarity, it's most colloquially known as residential segregation. Uh-huh. And one of the things that the book talks about, is, I think it helps explain why we see a divided city such as Louisville. Because when you're looking at where low-income property is, who's willing to rent to people who are financially insecure, you're going to find places in the west and in the south regions of Louisville. Yeah. And when you look at where the highest rates of poverty are, you're going to find them in the west and the southern areas of Louisville, because that's where you're going to find your trailer parks. That's where you're going to find your depressed housing prices. And it's the idea that, you know, it's it's not Louisville's not residentially segregated because people prefer to live near people of the same race as they do, or people of the same economic status as they do. People choose to live in these neighborhoods or these areas of town because that's where they can find housing. That's where they're going to find people who will rent to them. 
I think that's one of the big things that we have issues with when it comes to Louisville today is we're trying to attempting to poorly, I would say, but attempting to spread housing throughout the county, throughout Jefferson County, where we can start to spread out people who are on Section 8 or people who are looking for a trailer home mm. or looking to rent Section 8 housing. Because when you go back to looking at renters who are going to court, one thing that the book talks about is that poor people are not offered lawyers. They're not offered attorneys like you would find in a criminal case. In fact, the book tells us that 90% of landlords have attorneys and 90% of tenants do not. And so they're going into a criminal justice system where they're already at a disadvantage. Yeah, the, the, the criminalization of poverty. Yeah. Huge issue. Yeah, exactly. And, and and on top of that, you said the criminalization. And then you, you talked about the fees, the prices that the poor have to pay for being poor. I've always said there's the criminalization of poverty. There's also the commodification of poverty. Absolutely. Poverty is big business for some. It took me a long time to understand that, that there's a poverty industry that certain sectors of society prey on the poor and the vulnerable for fees. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell.
This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. These are serious, serious issues, obviously. And I think that everyone in the United States, internationally as well, can now see many of these issues that came together, an incident that happened back in March. This incident has been all over the news in Louisville all summer, particularly within the last two or three weeks. And that was the March 13th shooting, police shooting of Breonna Taylor, who was a JCTC student where both Chip and I work and lived in the southern end of Louisville that Chip just mentioned. Within that, if anybody looks beyond the national headlines, particularly for those of us that live here in Louisville who read the Courier-Journal, some of the investigative reporting around that issue, um, all of the things that we talked about, economics, the realities of the drug trade, municipal corruption, housing insecurity, you can see those not far from that incident. A July 5th, 2020 article by the Louisville Courier-Journal, it was entitled, Brianna Taylor Warrant Connected to Louisville Gentrification Plan, Lawyers Say. And that article, which was back in July, started a whole process of investigative journalism within Louisville, and it was highlighting how all of those factors contributed to that event. And we've been talking about eviction, but the word in that article was gentrification. Yeah. I live in Butchertown, and, and for those, we're going to use Louisville now as a case study for some of these issues, for those listeners who are not in Louisville. I live in a little small neighborhood called Butchertown, and it's right next to another neighborhood that's called Nulu, New Louisville, N-U-L-U. Nulu is sort of the hip new spot within Louisville. Uh, you, you hate to use the term, but the best way you can describe it, you know, hipster boutiques really nice restaurants. And it definitely caters, I think, for sure, to a middle-class or upper-middle-class white clientele. I moved to Louisville in 2017. I moved to Butchertown and Nulu in 2019. I had no understanding of the history that predated the revitalization and development of Nulu. Come to find out over the summer, Black Lives Matter extended some of their activities over into Nulu and actually had a protest called Occupy Nulu, and, you know, I, this happened a few blocks from me, and I was following it on the news and some of the alternative media sources that we have here in Louisville. And the whole history of gentrification, the former Clarksdale Housing Projects, Liberty Green, mm-hmm. uh, anybody, anybody can go and check these things out at the Louisville Courier-Journal or the Louisville Eccentric Observer, Leo Weekly. And the idea of gentrification, educate me and educate the listener on gentrification and the relationship between gentrification and eviction and what that means in and around Nulu, because I don't know. I'm being honest. Before I do that, I want to give your listeners a history lesson. Sure. But before the history lesson, I want to I want to explain something that you talked about earlier, which is you're looking at especially African-Americans being kicked out of their houses. And really, housing plays such a critical role in race relations today. I think it's really important that we look at this, right? And before I get into gentrification, which deals with another housing issue, I want to talk about the housing crisis that happened. And you look at the housing crisis, that really hurt African-Americans, really the working class, much harder than it hurt whites or the middle class. And the reason for that is because a lot of African-Americans were really targeted for subprime loans. And again, this is the idea that you had a lot of African-Americans buying these really bad mortgages. And then when that bubble burst, what happened is that you saw these people doing their best to pay for their mortgage really get funneled right into the rental property market. And what we can see here, especially from what happens when you get evicted or you bottom up in your loan, there's a really great book that I would encourage your listeners to read, which is called The Color of Credit by Stephen Ross. And it talks about mortgage discrimination and describes really well what happened in the housing bubble and how that really 
disproportionately affected working class Americans and specifically African Americans. But to your point about gentrification, I want to, again, tell your listeners the story. First, what happened, it goes all the way back to after World War II. After World War II, you had the GIs come home. And what happened is they started a GI Bill. Now, when the GIs came home from World War II, you had most GIs, white GIs, black GIs, really living in tenant housing in the inner city. But what happened is the FHA, the Federal Housing Authority, decided they were going to offer low mortgages to these GIs, specifically white GIs. This also happened right after the 1950s when President Eisenhower built the Interstate Highway, which allowed individuals to actually move away from the inner city, drive into the inner city if they had jobs. And so what you had was you had these specifically white Americans beginning to move out into the suburbs. And so you had these white Americans moving out into the suburbs that could get to their housing next to the highway. But they did not offer the same low housing rates to people of color. They didn't offer it to Black GIs. They didn't offer it to Hispanic GIs. They didn't offer it to Asian GIs. This was solely offered to white Americans. And what happens is is that as they were creating these residential districts, who they're going to offer mortgages to, again, housing, looking at housing discrimination, looking at structural discrimination that we focused on, you can see they started what's called redlining. And they had redlining where areas where they were not going to offer mortgages to individual people. And the city of Louisville actually did a really good job. You can look it up. I can't remember the exact address. I'll get that to you. But it actually shows you the original redlining map from Louisville, and it's overlaid on top of an existing Google map for the city. So you can actually see where those barriers were. And the reason why it's called redlining, for your listeners to understand, is that they actually used colors and they colored in using red marker what areas they weren't going to lend to. And then if it was a green area, you had access to those FHA loans. And if it was a yellow area, that was an area where they were boarding really close to that red area. In fact, great example of this, 8 Mile in Detroit, for those of you who know the, the rapper Eminem, the reason why they built that big barricade along 8 Mile was because they were actually yellow lined. It was a yellow lined area. And so to go from yellow to green, they, they built a wall sectioning themselves off from that red line area. Yeah. Right? Yes. And so what happened was typically blacks in the inner city who didn't have access to housing. And this is one of the reasons why when people, when I talk to my students about wealth inequality today, the reason that why whites have two times the amount of wealth that black families don't is because they didn't have access to the FAA housing when it first came about. Hmm. Literally, Hmm. the government's giving free wealth or wealth at a subsidized price to whites that they're not doing it to the other races in the United States. And likewise, the housing bubble with subprime mortgages, again, adversely hurt people of color more than it did typically whites. Mm -hmm. So anyway, again, blacks in the inner city, if they're renting, they don't have assets, right? They don't own their home. You don't gain any kind of wealth when you rent. And so what we see is that the blacks have been living in this inner city. That's typically why there's a lot of poverty in the inner city. When whites moved to the suburbs, actually wealth moved to the suburbs. And so you're having a depressed area. And so you typically have people of color living in the inner city. And now what's happened is there's actually been a trend now to move back into the inner city. And this is gentrification, where you have housing that's typically, you're thinking about minority-owned neighborhoods, people of color living in those neighborhoods, working-class people living in those neighborhoods. But as the middle class, as you see more wealth move into the inner city, it's raising that property value 
which means that renters to keep the same profit margins they have have to charge more which means it's harder for the renters to stay in that area and so what's happening is that now those renters that lived in the inner city are being pushed out to the suburbs are being pushed out to other areas of town which is again disastrous because if they lived in the inner city poor people pay more for housing poor people pay more for transportation poor people pay more for food there's a lot of good data and research on that to showcase that and so they're already at a disadvantage but now they're being removed from their home because they can't pay the tax increase the tax burden and so when you have people moving into these gentrified areas what they're doing is they're modifying the existing structures there could be knocking down structures putting up new housing uh, which again is going to cause the tax value on that property to increase which is going to affect a surrounding area, the circumference of that area. And that's what you're seeing in Butchertown, right? As the value of those businesses, as the value of that housing increases, you're going to see an increase on those tenants living in that area. And that's going to force them out. And that's the idea about gentrification. It's a very policy-oriented way of evicting people without having to actually send them paperwork. Hmm. Eviction exactly. without the eviction. Price yeah. them out of their homes. Exactly. And you see that going on everywhere. There's a really good book that I think a lot of people in the Chamber of Commerce read. It's called, I can't remember the guy's name. I think it's Richard Florida. It's called The Creative Class. And it talks about how there's really a big push to move people in to the inner city. You want to modernize the inner city. You want to make it a commercial hub. You want to make it a very touristy area. But all it's going to do is that's going to increase the value on those properties. Now, I think what's interesting in Louisville is that if you look at Louisville, especially what we call the 9th Street divide, so what's on 9th Street, and you look at 9th Street, especially closer to Broadway, you'll see the Greyhound bus area. You'll see the Louisville Housing Authority. Yeah, Across yeah. the street, you have Beecher Terrace. And you, know, you have the 502 apartments on the other side. But that's a big reason why you see people wanting to modernize or what they call mixed income housing. This is a, a housing policy that came out of HUD. HUD is the Housing and Urban Development uh, Department for the United States government, falls under the executive branch. And what they want to do is they want to, in order to really, quote unquote, help these individuals, they want to first evict them. And then what they want to do is they want to put in mixed income housing where some of those residents that were evicted are allowed to come back. But also, again, you have people maybe with more income. And this is the idea that gets to the second point about individual inequality. The idea is that when you bring in people of higher income, now they can model, quote unquote, middle class values. Yeah. You see that there's a big deal when it comes to the culture of poverty. The Network Center for Community said that in the Russell neighborhood, evictions are four times the national average. In the Parkland neighborhood, they're twice the national average, typically what you find for the city. But you see, as these places continue to modernize, you're going to see more people moving out of that area, greater housing demand for these renters. And that's one of the reasons why in Louisville, you've seen the median rental price increase really over the last five years. And we've seen it increase more we see a jump really in rental prices every time they tear down a complex, whether it's Beecher Terrace, whether it's Park Duval, whether it's what happened in Smoketown, that neighborhood, you're yeah. going to see an increased demand for renting. Yeah, I know within Nulu in Butcherton, you, you had the Clarkstown housing projects there before, and it was gentrified, and these were on grants that were in the 90s and early 2000s. 
And I, I don't know, like I said, I don't know the, the history. I'm still learning it. If any of our listeners are listening, would like to leave a comment on our SoundCloud page or on our Facebook page. That area was gentrified. And that term that you using, the mixed income housing, this idea that Nulu would now be a, a middle class and working class neighborhood living in the same residential area. And then the economic pressure started rising. And I had read somewhere that only 40% of the original residents of what is now known as Nulu after gentrification ever even returned. Yes. That, that 60% of them were in effect evicted. Because they can't afford the cost of the housing property now that it's been redeveloped. Eviction is the burn. The gentrification is kind of the slow boil, to use some colloquial Kentucky analogies there. You can put a moratorium on eviction. Even President Trump did that this year. But think about the complexities of gentrification because you're coming in and promising economic development to a neighborhood. Well, no, nobody wants to stand up and be like, who would want us to stop doing that? And then there's that hidden 60% that never returns, that's evicted over the course of 10 or 15 years. And I'm trying to think in terms of a policy balance to gentrification. That's tough. You know, when you think about how you could incentivize in gentrification, but then you can also find a way to make sure the residents that don't come back find some way to do. Yeah. One of the things that really hurts about gentrification is, and I've talked about how housing and food insecurity, in my mind, are coupled. Yeah. Especially in downtown Louisville, when you saw what's going on with gentrification, when you see what's going on with this mixed income housing, what you see is less grocery stores. Because that's to do with food deserts. You see less grocery stores near all of this rental property, all of this, all the housing that's downtown. Mm. You know, we had um, Kroger's on Second Street that shut down and moved. And there was no replacement for that Kroger's. Hmm. In fact, the only grocery store that you can say that's downtown now is the one in the Omni Hotel. And that's a very posh, luxurious grocery store that's going to price a lot of people out. Yeah. You know, when you, it just intimidates the whole neighborhood. I, I live downtown. I was intimidated. It intimidates the whole neighborhood. And, and when you think about, I think I looked up Dare to Care, and Dare to Care said that 16% of Louisville residents are food insecure, and that number's only increased. And so it just goes with housing, it goes with gentrification. When you move people out of that neighborhood, and those people are going to have to move to an, another neighborhood where maybe they don't have the same stability that they had before, right? Yeah. One is you have, let's say, in Beach or Terrace, other places, in sociology, you talk about a, a kin network, right? Mm -hmm. And a kin network is like an informal social security, like a social support system where they can share the burdens of childcare, they can share the burdens of groceries, they can share transportation. And emotions really, in, in their psychology and, and emotion. Yeah, it, it's a support network that allows them to really lessen the economic costs on poverty. Yeah. But when you move people out of these neighborhoods, again, you're really starting to deconstruct these kin networks that existed. There's a really good book that happened in the 1980s called All Our Kin that really talks about how these kin networks support people in poverty. And when you're breaking up these neighborhoods, it really puts not only a financial strain on these people, but like you said, it puts an emotional strain on these people. Yeah, it's traumatic. Every case study within Desmond's text was traumatic. I wouldn't even wish that stuff on my worst enemies in this world to go through some of those situations that they were having as they lost their home. And the loss of dignity that went yeah. along with that. Your dignity as a human being has been stripped from you. 
And worse than that is here you're living in one of the greatest superpowers, economically speaking, in the world, and you have lost everything. And all of that wealth that Chip talks about that surrounds you, you no longer have any access to it. And you have to go through not just the indignities that led you to that point, but how many indignities do you got to go back through to even regain even a modicum of access to the wealth that you previously had? Well, absolutely. I mean, there's another book that I tell my students about that explains just that. It's called Living on $2 a Day by Kathleen Eden. It talks about how you have a growing number of Americans who are living on less than $2 a day. You have people who are working at Walmart who can't afford Walmart clothes. Hmm. The book talks about, eviction talks about how you had movers, right? Moving companies were literally moving storage from people that they knew. They're evicting, they're help moving their furniture, clothes, items out of their friend's house because they got evicted. Eviction is a personal issue that affects a lot of people. I had a friend recently, she helped a coworker whose sister was being evicted. And one of the things that she told me was that when people get evicted, you know, in this case, it was a seven-day eviction. She really couldn't figure out where she was going to go. She couldn't afford a moving company. When they got to this woman's house, all her belongings were spewed out on the lawn. Oh. Now, what's interesting, and this is not unique to this woman, but this happens quite a bit. This is pretty ubiquitous when it comes to evictions. You had neighbors and other people who were coming up like it was a yard sale and just taking yeah. this family's items, clothings, because they were just out on the sidewalk. And we don't really talk about it as an informal yard sale, but I mean, really, it's this is the life that we see of people who are living in America today. And it's like you said, it's 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 um it's unacceptable. Yeah, it's 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 really it's really sad. It's really, yeah. it's, really it's, sad. it's almost mind boggling. It's almost mind boggling. I mean, there's a there's a yeah, I talked about the visual art and much of that were in Protestant countries. And I you know I d I don't want to link this back up to, to a specific religious sect. But there, you know, the whole idea of the Protestant work ethic, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstrap and that you are, which is a very Northern European thing that, you know, you are in complete control of your environment. Anything that happens to you within your environment comes under the realm of your own personal decisions and the results and the outcomes of your personal decisions. Okay, you read this book, you listen to this conversation that Chip and I are having, you're much more enmeshed. There's levels of enmeshment and social networks and things that come to bear on the act of being evicted itself. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. We've had a great conversation here. You have mentioned many, many book recommendations, and we're going to get those up for the listeners to read for themselves. Chip, I just want to ask one last question. We've gone over all this great information, all these great sources. An individual reads the book, reads Evicted by Matthew Desmond, listens to this episode, Read Succeed, and they ask themselves, okay, what are some things I can do to alter behaviors in my own life or even branch out into activism to help reduce the burdens of eviction on American society? What would you tell them? How would they go about doing it? Speak to your Metro Council representative. Email the mayor email the governor, get involved, tell other people, make this issue known, make it stand out, especially once the moratorium runs out at the beginning of next year. Please make sure this topic is front and center on people's minds. Make sure that your Metro Council person knows about it. Make sure that people talk about it and don't ever stop talking about this issue. I know when you think about what's going on with the housing administration, I would also tell you not just your local representative, but also email your congressperson, email your senator, reach out to, and if it's in Louisville, it's John Yarmouth, reach out to Mitch McConnell, reach out to Rand Paul, 
let them know that this is not something that is a Republican or Democrat issue. This is a Kentuckian issue. You have Kentuckians of all different races. You have Kentuckians in different geographical settings. This is not a Louisville issue. This happens in all 120 counties. And especially if you know someone who's been evicted, please try to reach out and find help to them. David, before I go, I want to tell people that if you're being evicted or you know someone who's going to be evicted, the state of Kentucky has a legal aid hotline. It's area code 833-540-0342. It's open 24 hours, seven days a week. Please reach out to it. You can also go to louisvillekoy.gov for eviction protection. If you go there, just type in eviction protection. And then also, if you feel like you're being evicted unfairly or discriminatorily, we have what's called a Human Relations Commission. You can reach out to them on their website. I'm a commissioner with them. So please make sure you reach out and seek help, seek help for others. Kentucky actually put $15 million back for rental assistance that's paid for by the CARES Act. So please make sure that if you need assistance, hopefully you'll find some help. Chip Thomas, Dean of Behavioral and Social Sciences at Jefferson Community and Technical College. Chip, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of Read and Succeed. Join us next episode as we review the 2020 Pulitzer Prize winner for nonfiction, The Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America by W. Caleb McDaniel. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening.